Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Vivian S. Lee is the president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences, an alphabet company whose mission is to apply digital solutions that enable people to enjoy healthier lives. A passionate champion of improving health in the U.S. and worldwide, Dr. Lee works closely with Verily's clinical and engineering teams to develop products and platforms that support the successful transformation of health systems to value and advance the co-production of health with patients, their caregivers, and our general community. Dr. Lee also serves as a senior lecturer at the Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital, and as a senior fellow of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She's the author of the acclaimed book, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies That Work for Everyone, which proposes how stakeholders may be incentivized to promote health as opposed to services. Dr. Lee served as the former dean, SVP, and CEO of the University of Utah Health System. As a leading healthcare executive, she is committed to the advancement of value-driven transformation in healthcare. By training, Dr. Lee is an MR radiologist who developed novel methods for measuring kidney function and vascular disease with MRI imaging. For her numerous accomplishments, Dr. Lee was ranked number 11 among the most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare in 2019. She was also elected to the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine, in 2015. Dr. Lee graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College, received a doctorate in medical engineering from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, earned her MD with honors from Harvard Medical School, and was the valedictorian of her executive MBA program at the NYU's Stern School of Business. It is such a privilege to have you on our podcast today with us, Dr. Lee. Your path has been extraordinary and unique as you've engaged in so many different facets of healthcare. As a physician, scientist, academic dean, healthcare CEO, and author, the list really seems endless. Of course, a lot of you know twists and turns and decision-making presides on experiences that you've had or even people or mentors that have guided you? Are there particular experiences or folks that have allowed you to navigate these career transitions that you'd like to share? The advice that I often give when people ask this question is that at every step of the way, a common feature has been that I've really thrown myself, I've really immersed myself in whatever the job is. So for example, when I started, I was an MRI radiologist on the academic track. I was really focused on research, teaching, and clinical care. And I was super into it, you know, whether it was in our lab getting NIH grants or teaching MR physics. I actually, my first book was a book about cardiovascular MRI uh, because I really enjoyed explaining how MRI works to people. And so I think that when you do that, you actually get the most out of the role that you're playing and you learn things that really enable you in the future 
in ways that you would never imagine. So one piece of advice I often give people is don't don't focus so much on the future that you miss out on the real opportunities that are facing you in the present. And all along the way, I have had uh, mentors and people who have been exemplars in whatever area it is, whether it was some of the brilliant MR physicists that I worked with when I very first started who taught me <laughs> how it all worked, to healthcare CEOs who have really been tremendous role models in terms of leadership, leading change, for example. You asked also about authors. So becoming an author was a different kind of motivation. That really came out of working with students and trainees. When I was at the University of Utah, I actually started a series of lectures for the first and second year medical students. I know you're a fourth year student, um, so you can probably relate to this, where I really felt like I wanted to impart to them some of the knowledge that I had that I wish I'd had when I was in medical school. I wish I understood how healthcare really worked. I really wish I understand the business of how healthcare worked. Even after residency, fellowship, even as a junior faculty member, I don't think I could really explain to you how our hospital managed to get revenue, managed to allocate its cost, or even managed to pay me. And in, unless we really understand how the business of healthcare works, I don't think that we can really be leaders in healthcare. So that's actually what motivated me to write the book and to, to have that author component was really to be able to share with others insights that I had that I thought, you know, this isn't really that hard. If you can learn all of pharmacology and all of anatomy and physiology, you could definitely understand this. And the earlier you understand this, the more likely you can see opportunities for improving and fixing our healthcare system. And that's really what I hope for your generation. I completely echo the sentiment and, you know, as someone who engaged in undergraduate business studies and really enjoyed uh, the business side of healthcare amidst pursuing medicine and now surgery, I have really been pushing my university as well as surgical residencies to really embrace this mentality of understanding the, the broader healthcare ecosystem as there's so many interconnections and collaborations and in ways of coming together to solve these most challenging healthcare problems. And it's just been so fortunate to see medical students really get excited by this versatility of their profession. And I think the pandemic has really allowed physicians, medical students to embrace that role. That's absolutely right. And also there are increasingly broad opportunities for students and residents to really get firsthand experience. So when I was a student, let's say the main opportunities were working in a lab or working on a clinical trial, for example, for your scholarly project or some research efforts. And now, you know, you can get involved in a quality improvement project. You can get out in the community and learn about dissemination science or community engagement. Uh, you know, there's such a wide range of experiences. Or you could do a startup. You know, we actually had a bench to bedside innovation competition where a lot of students had their own startups as part of that. So um, yeah, there are so many opportunities now for students, which is makes me very optimistic for the future. I totally agree with you. And I think the crux of it is leveraging your experiences in the lab, in patient care and the clinical setting and, and applying those. But I'd like to kind of shift this into a discussion of what would your message be to those who are, say, in a stable clinical role and are considering a change, you know, considering working for a company or maybe going full-time on 
a startup as there's only, you know, 24 hours in a day. People ask me about this a lot since I think there's a lot of interest now in healthcare on the part of other industries. So technology companies, for example, businesses that may maybe in the past we didn't think of as healthcare businesses are certainly thinking about this angle. And so there are a lot of opportunities. And so what that means is that people in traditional healthcare, we need some subset of them to really be thinking about how to get involved. And it doesn't have to be an all-out career shift as I made. What I was going to do actually was to lead another healthcare system. I was going to be the CEO of a new system, very excited about it. And I decided to just go all out and, and move completely into this role leading health platforms at Verily. But others have done it in a more transitional kind of way, or they've tested the waters maybe by either serving as a consultant, for example, to a startup or to a larger company, maybe doing a project, an engagement. Many of these companies are looking for partnerships. And so if you are in a clinical setting or in an academic medical center, for example, you might get a taste of what it's like first by being a part of one of those collaborative partnerships and then getting a sense for whether it might make sense for you to take the leap. I will say that in my experiences, the while the people in both fields are amazing, you know, the people that I've worked with in healthcare and the people that I'm working with in tech, the cultures of the industries are very, very different. So, and, and there are many examples of people who have left healthcare, come into one of these businesses and then gone back. So I think it is important to have some sense of, of what you're, I'm not sure that I would recommend to everyone doing what I did, which is just sort of jump in. I think maybe people who are thinking about it, you know, looking for opportunities to put your toe in the water might be a good way to start. I'd like to dive in a little bit more into that transition from academia to Verily and kind of get a sense of what compelled you to make this switch in your career. So I had served as the CEO at the University of Utah Health and the Dean of the Medical School and Senior Vice President for six years. And then I had a year sabbatical when I was writing my book, The Long Fix, and again, building on all of the experiences we had, not only in Utah, but lessons from across the country, you know, really inspiring stories from all over the country and very useful lessons, I thought, for people to adopt and as I mentioned earlier, I was ready to take on a new CEO role of a health system, really great health system, had an offer in hand, was calling some of my friends saying, hey, come and join me in this new adventure, when the leadership of Verily reached out to me again. And there were two main points the team here made. One was, you know, Vivian, if you're lucky and in your new healthcare system, if you're successful, hopefully you will impact that system and the community of people who have their care at that system. But really the challenge in healthcare, one of the biggest challenges in healthcare, as you see in your own book, is that we really can't seem to scale success across the country. And the, one of the things that the technology sector really seems to do well is to scale. And, and not simply just scale a generic product, but to scale a personalized experience at scale in a way that's accessible and engaging. And all of those components, I think, are things that we're missing in healthcare. So that was one piece, the idea of thinking about how we can actually bring solutions at scale. And then the final book, I guess, was the CEO said, and now you've written a book about fixing healthcare, so why don't you just come and fix it? Just follow your book. Let's take the lessons from your book and carry it out. And I couldn't turn that down, so <laughs> set off on this new adventure. That's amazing to hear and very inspiring to really put things into practice and leverage, I guess, the strengths of one industry to solve issues in another. 
I'd like to pose a question to you. What would your message be to those with more of the business or tech experience trying to impact healthcare, which is a very unique field of itself? Well, like all complex problems that we have to solve, I think it's really important to recognize that a diversity of backgrounds and perspectives and capabilities is absolutely essential. There's a guy named Scott Page, who's a faculty at the University of Michigan, who wrote a book called The Difference. And that book really, it's a story of many examples. I don't know if you've read this book, but it really talks about how to solve large complex problems, not not specifically in healthcare, but just generically. The best thing that you can have is a group of people with really diverse perspectives. It's better than having a room full of geniuses, you know, mathematical geniuses or, or whatever it is. And I think that that's really what we see. That's what I've been seeing since I've been in Verily is that there's sort of a core group of people. There are the people who really understand the business of healthcare, which is incredibly complex, as you know, and that people who are new to healthcare can't even imagine just the fact that the users of the products that we are building, whether they're the patients, consumers, you know, individuals or clinicians are usually not the people paying for the product. Just that in and of itself is complexity that um, differentiates healthcare from almost any other industry. So just understanding the business is really important. You, you can have the world's greatest idea, but if your business model doesn't work, it really won't work in healthcare. And then having the clinical expertise, of course, I think that kind of in this audience probably goes without saying, but it's absolutely essential to understand the clinical perspective and to realize that healthcare isn't like a manufacturing plant where each patient isn't like, you know, we're not standardized, we're not each a Toyota Corolla, and the people working on us are not assembly line people. So the huge variations in biology and psychology and socioeconomic factors, you know, those I think people really underestimate when they're new to healthcare. And then there's the whole engineering, product development, user experience, research, user experience, design, all of the expertise around building products that really are data-driven, but also personally engaging. Frankly, that's the part we're missing in healthcare mostly, um, and that uh, companies like the one I work for have in spades. And so bringing all of these folks together in these collaborative teams is what enables us to, I think, think much more ambitiously about what we can accomplish. But it's not easy. It's a little bit like sometimes I feel like the Tower of Babel. You know, we all speak our own languages. We all have our abbreviations. And some of the same abbreviations mean different things in each of the communities. So there's a lot of translating. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of bridging across different cultures that has to be done. But when you do it, boy, it, it's just so worthwhile because the success of what can be produced is just, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, totally agree. And I think this is a really natural transition point to learn more about your role at Very Life Sciences and the work you've been doing. Could you tell us a little more about your current role as the president of health platforms at Very Life Sciences? Sure, happy to. So Verily Life Sciences is a company that originally started out as Google Life Sciences. It was a part of Google X. And when Google became Alphabet, we were sort of spun out as one of the, quote, bets of the Alphabet family. Get it? <laughs> and then we were rebranded Verily. And so we were purpose-built from the beginning to focus on life sciences and healthcare. And originally, for the first few years, our company is now about five years old. So in the first few years, 
our primary focus was on the baseline health project and building the clinical studies platform, really building out tools to enable clinical trials to happen at scale and in a distributed fashion. So you didn't have to come to a, an academic medical center, for example, just to get access to a clinical trial. You could be anywhere and it could enable really the democratization of access to clinical research, which in turn could really speed up discovery and, uh, and bring drugs and, and diagnostics and, and devices to market faster. So that was kind of one of the cornerstones, as well as a tremendous amount of capability in building hardware, sensors, devices, whether it's surgical robots or contact lenses or you know, all kinds of things like that. And then I was recruited three years ago to start health platforms. And the whole idea of health platforms was we have built incredible capabilities around data, data ingestion for our clinical trials platform, everything from sensor data to omics data to claims data, EHR data. We have these incredible sensors. We build continuous glucose monitors for people with type 2 diabetes. You know, we have all this expertise. How can we leverage all of that in the clinical care delivery space? How can we really leverage that to address the triple aim or the quadruple aim? Better health, lower the cost, increase access, increase the experience for everyone. And that's really been my charge. So I've been doing this for three years. And right now we actually started with almost nothing. I, when I joined the company, I had a couple of business development folks working with me, but we've really grown. We have five or six business lines now. And I can tell you a little bit about a, a couple of them. They really vary a lot, but they focus on what I consider to be the core users or the core constituents of healthcare. There's a serious significant focus on people as patients, you know, consumers of healthcare, of course. Another focus on providers, so on clinicians, physicians, nurses, other people in the clinical delivery side. And then the third main area of focus for our work is on the people who are paying employers, insurers, people who are on the paying side. So I'll give you an example. We have Onduo, which is a company that started as a joint venture between Verily and Sanofi. And more recently, has we've become the majority owners and it's managed within health platforms now. And Onduo started as a business really to help people who have type 2 diabetes manage their blood sugars. It's now expanded to weight loss, to hypertension, mental well-being, and so on. But just to give you a sense of the novelty of the approach, so when you have individuals with type 2 diabetes, or, or for that matter, people who have also issues with weight loss, the biggest factor that you really want to achieve, or the biggest goal, is really to have people understand how their diet, how their exercise, how their medication, even if they're on medications, interact to affect their health, and in this particular case, their blood sugars. So in Onduo, we have a continuous glucose monitor, you know, one of these devices that's maybe the size of a key fob that you put on your arm or your abdomen that measures your blood sugar 24-7. It happens to be that we manufacture, we, we don't manufacture, that's not the right word, we develop those for Dexcom, uh, which is just coincidental because we actually have that expertise in the company. But we use a continuous glucose monitor. It has this world's smallest Bluetooth chip that transmits it to your app on your phone. And the Onduo app shows you during the course of the day what your blood sugar is doing. And then you take pictures of your meals and snacks because it's your phone, so that's easy to do. 
And now all of a sudden you can make a visual association between what you're eating and what it's doing to your blood sugar. In some cases, the relationship is obvious, you know, when you indulge, you know, and you've got that second piece of chocolate fudge cake, you're not surprised to see your blood sugar spike. But some of the AI there can also look at patterns, you know, whether soy milk is better for you than skim milk or whether a bowl of cornflakes is better for you than a couple of eggs on toast, you know, those kinds of things. The AI is really helpful. And then, of course, there's the whole telehealth piece. You can chat, text, video conference with a coach, a pharmacist, a physician, a nurse. And then layering on all of that is this magic of user experience research and design where the tech industry brings this incredible capability of engaging people, you know, really creating a personalized experience and making people want to do this and feel like they're empowered to do it and not being lectured, you know, to eat better and exercise more, blah, blah, but really make it more engaging. And so that's why this Onduo product and others, you know, in the field are, are so successful. I hope that gives you a little bit of a flavor of the kinds of businesses and the kind of work that we're doing. Yeah, definitely. I think that example definitely brought your work to life. And that's an incredible example as well. And I really like how you mentioned the personalized experience that tech can bring. And that is a huge missing factor for the care in you know, traditional settings. And the ability to scale is also a big piece that's missing as well. Just a follow-up question. So is health platforms' main mission to find out how the data that you have accumulated and all the learnings you have accumulated so far in other parts of the business can be applied as new business ideas? So you are kind of creating new companies within Barely and then launching them? Am I understanding that correctly? Well, the main goal of health platforms is really to achieve better health for everyone. And the realization that I came to when I was the CEO of a healthcare system was there was so much talk about lowering the cost of care. But what I've found to be really clearly true is that if you can achieve better health, that lowers the cost of care. Better health means fewer hospitalizations, fewer admissions, fewer procedures, fewer readmissions. And so the goal really has to be better health. So our goal is to achieve better health for communities. And in my view, in order to achieve better health for communities, you can start with the patient and providing digital health solutions that they can use when it's convenient for them in their homes or at work to complement what happens in the clinic, to complement what happens in the hospital, but recognizing that most of us do not spend our lives in the hospitals and clinics. So providing that kind of access to care and insight so everybody can really achieve better health, that's one component. Another big component of achieving better health and lowering the cost of care and more access is providing tools to clinicians. Because if you do end up getting hospitalized, then of course what happens in a hospital is a significant driver of your outcomes and your cost of care. So how do we give clinicians the right tools to be able to care for their patients in a way that follows the right guidelines, that enables them to reduce variations, to lower the cost of care, to improve outcomes? And then similarly for people who are responsible for the whole population, so the employers, the insurance companies, how do they know how to focus their attention? They want to focus their resources on the people who are most likely to get sick. And how could we help them do that so that the resources are really focused on the people who are most at risk, for example? So that's an example of how providing the right tools to each of those constituents can really advance the health of the community overall. If you just focused on one, you just focused on, for the example, the digital health space, 
and you couldn't get the alignment with the clinicians and you couldn't get the alignment with the insurance companies, it's probably not going to be that effective. Mm, I see. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Health platforms is really a place where people brainstorm how to make people's health better. And that is by brainstorming what tools、um, are needed and what you can develop to you know, enable people to do it on their own terms. And there's another dimension. I mean, I, I'm not sort of giving you the full picture of it, but one of the programs within health platforms is called 115, and it's a non for profit in Dayton, Ohio, focused on substance use disorders. So while I talked mostly around these different users, another way to think about the challenges, another way in which we really want to contribute is in, in certain areas where. We just know it's, it's just vitally important for us to be able to provide better care, better mental and behavioral well being for individuals. And the substance use disorder crisis that we have in this country has only been made worse by the COVID pandemic. And so here we're trying to focus just on that population, really developing really good tools that can be scalable. And those can inform everything that we do in other parts of the business as well. And Dr. Lee, these are massive questions and unmet needs that everyone in the country and in the world know of, and we know that it should be fixed. But these are really complex problems that we are trying to tackle and solve. And especially at a large organization like Fairly Life Sciences, what do you think constitutes as an effective leader quality to lead people and lead the company through solving questions as complex as what you're trying to solve? Well, Irene, that's a really big question. So I think there are maybe a few components of it. Your question really is about how to be an effective leader in healthcare, particularly in a time when it's all about change. We're not an industry that's really <laughs> stable. There's just so much change that's underway right now. And I think that's particularly difficult as leading an environment of change. So, first, you really have to have knowledge of the field. Again, that's partly why I wrote The Long Fix, was because I really wanted to share with people how does healthcare actually work, including, you know, one of the most difficult chapters for me to write was the chapter on the pharmaceutical industry. You know, how does a medication move from the pharmaceutical manufacturer through all the different steps to get to your pharmacy for you to pick up that prescription? Where, how do the dollars all flow? What's the regulatory process? Behind the approval, who's involved in, in every step of the way. So, there's a lot of just fundamental knowledge that you have to have to lead in healthcare. And I think that's actually it's harder and more complex than in other industries. And then I think it's very important to have a very clear vision of where you think we should be going and to be able to articulate that vision effectively across all levels of the organization and across the constituencies. So, It's probably easier for many of us to communicate with people who are like us. So, if you're a clinician, you can communicate with other clinicians. If you're a researcher, you communicate with other researchers. But it's actually pretty hard to communicate across a wider swath of people, just like it's hard to lead a wider swath of people because there's so much more diversity. You know, they're very diverse. So, communicating effectively to them and making sure that everybody in the organization, both within as well as those who are key external constituents, know why you're doing what you're doing and are on board. That's super important. Then you need tools. You actually need the tools、uh, and the data to guide you on your journey. It's like the map. You've picked your de destination. You have a team of people that you can work with effectively. That's like making sure that you've got the car, the gas in the tank, your snacks. And then you've got to figure out the path there. And do you have the tools for getting there? And do you have the, the data dashboards to track your progress? 
to identify where there might be barriers and how to overcome them? And do you have all the, the talent that you need in order to get there? Because right now, with so much change going on in the organization, the kind of, again, diversity of perspectives and capabilities that you need may be different from what we needed in the past. Um, and then do you have kind of at the end of the day, an organization that has the same appetite that you do for that change and wants to go with you there? And, and if you do, which I felt very much so when I was at the University of Utah, and I also feel uh, very fortunate to also have that at Verily, then it's just fantastic. You know, it's, it's an adventure and everybody knows where we're going to go, passionate about that, but everybody's all in because you've got a clear direction, you've articulated it well, you've got a really strong team that can get you there and everybody's working together. Yeah, I think the three qualities that you mentioned are key. And I want to ask you, um, is there anything specific that we should do to achieve those three qualities? Well, there's some things that are in your control and some things that are not in your control. I guess that's true of life in general. (laughs) I think it's really important that whatever you are doing to really throw yourself into it intensely and to do a really, really good job, even if it's the most mundane thing. When I was a junior faculty, I was put on almost every committee. You know, I'm Asian, I'm a woman, they need diversity on a committee. Oh, let's put Vivian on that committee. So I was on a lot of committees. And I can't say that I was particularly interested in every committee that I was on, right? But I'm sitting on that committee. And sometime along that, in that phase of my life, I decided that I was tired of being nervous in committees. You know, I would get nervous just speaking up. I'd be like, my heart would start to raise, my palms would get sweaty. And so I, just, I was just nervous about it. I mean, I could give a talk, like I could give a lecture to students, okay, because that was my content. I wouldn't be too nervous doing that. But I was still nervous speaking up in these kind of settings. And I think a lot of people have this. I think it's a very common experience. So I decided around that time that I was going to get over this. I was going to challenge myself to speak at least once in every committee meeting. I applied this to um, my lab and when we used to give presentations, like I would force myself to get up there in one of those plenary sessions or whatever and ask a question. This is my own like little internal challenge to myself. But when I was doing it in the committee meetings, what I found that it made me do was I listened. I was paying attention, wasn't checking my email and doing my texting or whatever it is. I was really in the moment. I was trying to understand whatever the issues were, and some of them were trivial and some of them were important, whatever it was. I was like really in the moment because when I got up the nerve to raise my hand to say something, I wanted it to be good. You know, I wanted to say something that people would say afterwards oh, she made a good point, or oh, that was a really good question, or oh, that was a good recommendation, or whatever. And that's kind of an example of what I mean by even in the most mundane situations, if you really engage in it, I learned a lot too, because I was sitting in those meetings, I learned how to run those meetings. I learned who ran a good meeting, who didn't run a good meeting, you know, who got through the agenda, who got, you know, et cetera. How do you engage other people? I mean, I just was paying attention. I see a lot of people kind of going through life in whatever the moment is, they're doing something, they're doing what's happening in the next hour instead of doing what's in this hour. That's really important. So that's what you can control. What you can't control is the environment that you work in. You know, maybe you can control because you can choose where you work. And I think that's actually also very important. Some environments are very conducive. They really welcome people to throw themselves in, start new projects. They're embracing innovation. They like people to step up and do things. And others really are not going to change. They'll be the last to change. Like everything, there's a distribution of of personalities of organizations. And I've seen many times people 
complain to me about, I'm in this environment, I've made a proposal, I'm trying to do this, and nobody cares about it. And at that point, I say, it's very hard to change an organization. Even I, as the CEO, could not have moved that organization. I'm just going to say, I would have had to swap out all of my leadership before I could do that. So you have to have some alignment between your personality and what you're hoping to achieve and the environment that you're working in. If it's completely at odds, you're just going to beat your head against the wall. It's going to be very frustrating. And it's probably worthwhile trying to find a better fit if you can. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. Lee. Along those lines, you did kind of refer to your status as, you know, an Asian woman who's at the helm of, of all these different organizations in a powerful role across the board. But, you know, there are a lot of statistics that show that women continue to be underrepresented, comprising of only 15 to 16% of medical school deans. And, you know, the list goes on for chairs and full professors, and that's just academia, not to mention uh, healthcare organizations and venture capital. I'd like to hear your perspective as a woman navigating these hierarchical organizations and you know, unique considerations to doing that and and given your successes. One of my favorite projects was with a group of women called Women of Impact, which was a group that a colleague and friend of mine, Joanne Conroy, who's now the CEO at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, put together five or six years ago, maybe more, of leader, you know, women leaders uh, across healthcare. And first of all, I guess as a, maybe just as a little comment, I think it's great that there are a lot more of these kinds of informal associations of women. Just even this idea of having a podcast like what you're doing now, you know, these, these are great. I mean, people run into, face all kinds of challenges and they may not have people in their own work environments to help them talk through it. So this wasn't going to be the main point I was going to make, but I, I think it's really great to be able to connect with a number of these different kinds of formal and informal groups, I should say. But one of my favorite things that we did in Women of Impact was a project where we surveyed everybody and asked everyone, what's the single most important policy or practice you've seen to advance equity in the workplace? And uh, out of a group, I think there were about 60 of us, maybe about 30 some people responded And it was fantastic. It was all these different lessons about whether it was how to run a meeting and make sure that everyone's voice is heard and that the right people are credited with the right ideas, with good ideas, to things like how do we think about uh, family leave time and making sure that that's not a penalty and, you know, just, just all kinds of great ideas. We pulled it together. It's actually been published. It was in New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst probably one of the few papers that I've been a part of with 25 co-authors, which is wonderful, especially all women leader co-authors. As we have more and more women leaders, and you said the number 15 to 16, when I started as dean, it was something like 10%. One of the things that's really important is that we ourselves don't inadvertently perpetuate some of the standard stereotypical behavior because we've grown up in it, you know, the biases that are there. And that we take the time to step back and say, you know, if we were running the show, which we are at different levels of the organization, no matter where you are, you're influencing some group of people. How would we like to see things run differently? How would committee meetings be run better? Does it have to be the most aggressive person always wins? 
Or can we think about it a little bit differently, for example? I'd like to convey that message to as many women as possible, because no matter what role you're in, you have the opportunity to shape the environment, to shape the culture, to take the initiative to recognize everyone or to support and promote people who are like there was this whole book quiet about the introvert right how do we actually create an environment where everyone feels like they can contribute and be recognized for what they're doing i think that's actually really really important Dr. Lee, we are coming close to an hour now, so we would like to really thank you for the time you've taken to speak with us today. It's been truly a remarkable experience to hear firsthand about your journey and how you've thought about some decisions in your life and how you have impacted so many different lives. You're continuing to do so. One final question um, we'd like to leave you with is, now that you have quite a few successes in your back pocket, what keeps you grounded? The challenges that we're facing in this country and around the world are humbling. Whatever success or progress that we make is just such a tiny step in terms of what's actually needed. So I'd say that professionally is definitely what keeps me grounded. I don't think there's anybody that's doing the high fives all around saying, ooh, we've solved this problem. And what keeps me grounded personally is my family, of course. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at TheaHC, and on our website at TheaHC.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jain. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.